0: Today on Eating Matters, we are going to have a two-part show. First, we're going to discuss the importance of conservation efforts and the need to protect our waterways with journalist Virginia Gouin. Then we're going to continue our discussion about the role of technology in the agriculture space by speaking with Ariel Lauren Wilson, editor-in-chief of Edible and program director of the upcoming conference, Food Loves Tech. Stay tuned.
1: This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods, an online and wholesale distributor of heritage breed meat and poultry.
3: Good
0: evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where t- where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host Jenna Ute, and we're broadcasting from a very noisy Roberta's this Sunday evening on Heritage Radio Network. So we've been talking a lot about conservation efforts with the, um, especially with the recent report of a very scary. Uh, UN report on climate change and, you know, also what the upcoming Farm Bill will do or won't do to promote sustainability in um, the agriculture industry. Today we're going to continue that thread and talk about conservation practices and those primarily in our waterways. We're going to talk about why they're important, what's currently being done throughout the country, and what the future looks like, um, you know, and what's been would been. What is happening to encourage these practices? Virginia Gouin is joining the show to discuss. She's a freelance science journalist who's written a couple of pieces recently for Civil Eats about this topic. Um, her articles include Farm Runoff in US Waterways Has Hit a Crisis Level Are Farmers Ready to Change? And then more recently, she's written the piece Farm Conservation Practices Are Profitable, But Will Lenders Step and Insurers Step Up? Um, And I'm so pleased that these two articles have brought her to the show. Virginia, welcome to Eating Matters. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we're going to get right into it. Can you, um, first of all, why did you decide to write uh, these two pieces and focus specifically on our waterways?
3: Well, uh, many years ago, I was actually working, um, I did a master's degree looking at uh, conservation reserve program lands and how um, we could keep the soil quality that had been built up in them um, on the land once they went back into production, and so I knew that things like no-till farming and cover crops and things like that could really help build soil quality and maintain it. And so I was curious, you know, how these practices had spread, and um, to what degree they had spread around the country, and how were they having an impact? And it didn't seem like they really could be at this point, given that we still continue to have this annual um, hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico and, you know, other waterways like the Chesapeake Bay are really still struggling and Lake Erie turns into a pea soup kind of concoction on a fairly regular basis now. And so um, just really wanting to kind of dig in and figure out what are the drivers here? Why are these practices that we know are good and we know are helpful um, why are they not making the impact that we need to see?
0: Right. So let's start. Can you tell us just you know for those of uh, those of us who have just kind of no idea um, what this looks like? What is the runoff process? What exactly happens? And what's the specific problem? So
3: you know, farmers grow crops, and they want to make sure that their crops have ample nutrients available to them to flourish and to get reach the maximum possible yield, and that is their goal. And so they apply um, fertilizers, Mm -hmm. nitrogen and phosphorus specifically. Um, But, you know, there's always a little extra. And if everybody has a little extra and we get our rains that we need to grow the crops, the extra flows off into the waterways. And, you know, all of those nutrients, um, you know, really start to matter um, when they all kind of pool together. And so you can get, um, you know, when you have excess nutrients in a waterway, it's going to continue to its point of exit. So like say the Gulf of, the Mississippi River flows into the Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. All of those nutrients collect there. And you know, the algae love them, (laughs) they flourish. And so these algal blooms can start to happen and they can kind of just grow out of control and consume all of the oxygen in the waterway and leave it as a dead zone. And so this is something that's an annual thing in the Gulf of Mexico, and it's just getting bigger. And so it takes all of those farms along the whole of the Mississippi River doing something to soak up those nutrients and not allow them into the waterway to have any kind of measurable impact. And we're not achieving that.
0: What is a dead zone specifically? Does that mean that nothing can like, you know, fish
3: can't? Can die. It means um, there can even be some harmful algal blooms can even produce toxins that can be harmful to fish. But really, it's just the lack of oxygen. Um, And so most most critters in the waterways need oxygen to thrive. And so if they are deprived of that, they're just going to die. Um, So it's a lot of fish kills are the main things. The other thing, the other bad part of a harmful algal bloom, if it flourishes without you know with all of these extra nutrients is some of them can produce toxins that can actually be harmful to humans as well.
0: And so so the water supply gets contaminated in addition to or as well as, you know, as well as these algal blooms in the dead zones?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just kind of, uh, and it's it's a very um, cyclical thing. I mean, it's just this, you know, we see this pulse every year. And, it you know, it's almost like the algae you know, all of the nutrients cause this bloom and then over time it dies back and then things kind of return to normal. But it's just a, a cycle that keeps happening. And and every year the bloom gets bigger. And so it's just getting to like a really problematic stage where um, lawmakers, policymakers are getting pretty desperate to figure out what going to have an
0: impact and is this geographically speaking just an issue for the midwest like does this affect farmers in the northeast or california
3: it can affect any water body um you know that has that has a a pulse of nutrients so like i said lake erie is having a consistent problem there's some that are just consistently having problems Chesapeake bay lake erie all of the great lakes can, can have a problem to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Um, the Gulf of Mexico is the biggie, though. Um, it, it really is the one that's um, pretty pretty out of control, and uh, you know, all efforts to try to mitigate it aren't, haven't been successful as of yet.
0: And so, when we talk, when you you talk about conservation practices, the focus of your articles is on commodity crop growers, right? So are these farmers the biggest threat to our environment or, you know, and most in need of of the adoption of conservation practices? Like, what about farmers in the meat industry?
3: Really, it's, um, you know, it's mainly just that whole belt um, on in the Midwest, on the Mississippi River that, you know, those are commodity crop growers to a large extent. And you know, they're the ones that it would really be great if we could get um, conservation practices in place in, in those farms. We know that that would have a measurable impact. Um, and we know that there are some cover cropping systems that can work and that you know, theoretically that, that could, you know, enough people have done them to show that that's something that is plausible and feasible. Um, and even in some cases can be profitable Um, once people figure out how to do it correctly, um, this is a a win-win situation. Um, It's just been really hard to get Farmers to adopt these practices and maintain them um, for a variety of
0: reasons. Let's talk about what some of those, um, what some of these processes are. So you talk about first of all that they're they're carrots. So a lot of them are voluntary, or m- many mm-hmm. of them are voluntary. Um, but which ones, like in particular, have proven to be the most effective? Um, yeah. And then I've got a couple other <laughs> questions about <laughs> them. But let's just kind of run through the list of like the the big ones.
3: Sure. So, I mean, things like buffer strips, um, you know, so putting in kind of like a riparian grass buffer zone so that um, nutrient the grasses right by a stream would soak up all of the nutrients before they all go into the stream or, you know, incentivizing for people to do cover crops or conservation tillage. So mainly, you know, the big, the biggest thing you want to do is to keep, a root in the ground <laughs> like you don't want the bare soil there because you know that's just going to cause both erosion and all of those excess nutrients just to go straight into waterways so but if you have a, a seed or a root or a plant growing that is a source of um, soaking up all of these extra nutrients and so that's why a lot of these um, you know kind of voluntary incentive programs have at, it's at their heart. Some kind of soaking up mechanism to get all of that excess nutrients that were in, applied to the system, and kind of put them back into plant matter, and so they don't go into the streams. Okay. Um, and so that's you know that's a big component of all of these voluntary programs that have popped up. But a lot of them are very short term. You know, you, they'll pay somebody to do this for one to three years, and then oftentimes if the payment doesn't continue, the farmer won't continue to do the practice.
0: And By payment, you mean payment from, oh, just like a, yeah.
3: uh, Yeah, just kind of like a government incentive program. So, you know, they will get paid, the government will pay the farmer to do this, um, you know, X practice. Uh, And so that's enough of an incentive to just give it a try. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, those, like I said, short term, and that doesn't, People to often continue to practice.
0: And we'll talk a little bit more in a a bit about how you have found a lot of these practices to be profitable. But first, I want to kind of learn a little bit more about what some of these are. Um, So no-till practices. I didn't realize that, I thought that just tilling the land was something that is good for the soil and that everybody just kind of automatically does. But you're saying that there are some practices, like from a conservation perspective, that this might not be ideal?
3: Yeah. So whenever you turn over the soil, um, you are kind of disrupting the soil structure, and you also are making it easier to for the soil to erode. Um, And so a lot of people, especially in um, you know kind of highly erodible areas, a big push has been made to try and introduce no-till practices. So instead of tilling up the soil. Um, you directly feed the next crop into the residue from the crop before. You don't, you leave the soil structure in place. You, um, you don't disrupt the, you know, all of the organic matter that has been built up. And you have this, this um, you know, it, it's harder. It's, you have to have a special kind of drill. So there's a lot of upfront costs to going into no till. Um, okay. And that can be a big, um, that can be a, a very cost prohibitive step for a lot of farmers. But often you find these kind of no-till evangelists that are out there who swear by the fact that their organic matter levels start to increase, their soil structure is better, they don't, their soil erosion goes down quite a bit, they don't lose as much soil. Um, there's all of these really good reasons to do these practices, but it's really expensive on the front end to kind of transition to that type of system.
0: Okay, got it. So, um, so I, I, yeah, I was just curious about how that works, like tilling, I mean, this is just kind of getting really into the farming um, <laughs> technicalities, but yeah, I just thought that tilling, like turning the land was necessary for the seeding process. Um, but you're saying there's like a specific method to the no-till practices that requires some level of technology.
3: It's a, it's just a different um, drill that okay. is able to put the seed directly into, into the, the the yeah into the residue. So, I mean, you're you, you oftentimes sometimes there's a trade-off. You may have to use a few more chemicals to control weeds um, and to kill off the the residue enough to get the drill into the field. Mm-hmm. But maintaining the soil structure is the ultimate. Goal. And the only way to do that is not to till up the soil. And then you get, um, you know, a soil structure. Like if you want a soil that has a lot of earthworms and a lot of life in it and a lot of porosity so that it will soak up water, you know, you don't want to disturb it too often. That is a property that only happens if you leave the soil alone. And if you till it every single year, you kind of destroy the, the soil's ability to be able to hold water and nutrients. It, it becomes more highly erodible. Um, if, with, with excessive tillage.
0: Which is a, a big problem, soil erosion, right? Um, in yeah. addition to to runoff and sounds like a big contributing factor too. So what about precision fertilizer management and things like nitrogen stabilizers? What are these um, conservation efforts?
3: So um, I think definitely precision fertilizer management is one of those things that, you know, really has a lot of promise. And I think a lot of people have, Take a lot of hopes on that um, and that's really just kind of doing some more intensive soil testing around your field um, really understanding your field at a very intimate level and knowing exactly where your bare spots are that you need to, to apply the fertilizer so instead of you know wholesale you know broadcasting fertilizer over the entire field maybe you have certain spots that are just fine and don't need any more and any more is just going to be ex- excess that you know, it's just a waste of money to apply it. And so if you can really just kind of use, um, a lot of people are using GPS and um, really kind of getting this um, pretty intensive map soil fertility um, level peak at what's happening on their field, then they know where they need to apply which nutrients um, and can really kind of hone in on um, that's all they need to do. And, And so I think that's, Got a lot of promise. Um, It's a way to reduce uh, the amount of overall fertilizers, hopefully reduce significantly the excess amount of fertilizers. But you know, that's again got a pretty um, solid upfront cost. It's real techie. A lot of people, you know, that can be a little bit of a turnoff. You know, that's just a lot of. Intensive management and things. A lot. What I find is interesting is a lot of the younger farmers just geek out and love it. Yeah. they think it's the coolest thing ever.
0: Yeah, so, I imagine.
3: Yeah, and it saves them money. I mean, in I under you know upfront costs are hard, especially you know in today's environment. Um, but. It really can help them dial in um, their overall cost and probably pay for itself over a fairly short amount of time.
0: So you wrote about that um, in your kind of follow up article uh, to the to the piece that you dedicated to runoff. So tell us a little bit about what you found in terms of the profitability of some of these some of these um, conservation efforts.
3: Well, so I think the thing that shocked me the most. So the Environmental Defense Fund had this report that came out recently that they had taken. Um, they, they have a group of farmers that they work with on a fairly regular basis, just to try to figure out, you know, how what what are farmers' needs and how can they, um, you know, kind of do studies that will address those needs. And one of them is, you know, we need to know how if and how these are profitable. Are these conservation practices making a difference to our bottom line? And I kind of was shocked that nobody had done this before. I mean, I think the value of organic matter, you know, we all know that organic matter has value in fields. Nobody's put a dollar amount on that. And so you know like one of the farmers Justin Knopp, he's increased his organic matter level from you know around i believe it's 1.5 percent to around 3 to 3.5 percent and that's huge that's a big deal
0: and by sorry sorry to cut you off uh, um but by organic matter just to be clear are you talking about like um additional topsoil or you know um compost like what what does that really mean
3: so organic matter is just the percent of organic matter in soil is just how much, um, you know, carbon uh, and different nutrients are, are, are in the soil. And so you want a soil that's rich in organic matter. So this can just be kind of degrading plant biomass because this can be, you know, <laughs> dead bugs. This can be like whatever organic source it is. All that is is fuel for the soil microbes to do their thing and make for a richer soil. So it's just really the nutrient, the kind of organic nutrient level that's just going to be in the soil anyway. Okay. And so you want a steady amount of organic matter always degrading, always replenishing the soil with nutrients. And so, you know, a lot of soils don't have that much that, you know, a lot of the, like cover crops, perfect example. If you till in a cover crop after you've grown it, Um, all of that organic matter is going to break down and just become part of the percentage of organic matter that you have in the soil. And that's great because it's just kind of a constant fuel source for soil microbes that are just doing their thing in the soil and keeping it healthy. And so if you increase your organic matter by a percentage or two, and that's a lot, and that typically takes a long time just to get enough organic matter put back into the soil that can be kind of turned into this, you know, long-lived Supply of nutrients um, that has value, and that that helps hold water, that helps um, you know create soil structure. It helps all reduce runoff. It has all of these benefits, mm-hmm. but nobody had ever put a dollar value on that, and we still don't really have a dollar value. But what the EDF report did was just go through the books of three farmers in detail and really look at how much they spent on the conservation practice and how much. Um, their other costs were reduced as a result of, um, you know, taking those other steps. And a lot of times, um, you know, there was a net gain. Um, In all three cases, there were net gains. And the, the really profound thing was that yields increased in the good years and yield losses decreased in bad years. So they were more resilient farms because they had more organic matter on their farms, because they... Um, had taken great pains to kind of hold the soil intact through conservation tillage methods. And so overall, they, you know, really kind of came out of every situation for the better. Um, you know, they had higher yields in good years, and they had, you know, they maintained yields in bad years better than some of their neighbors. And so it's just is kind of this buffer system to just, by being able to keep your soil healthy and on your land, you are just more resilient um, than maybe some of your neighbors are.
0: How expensive are these practices for the, in terms of the initial investment?
3: So one of the farmers, um, I was looking at uh, the farm finance report, and so an average was, um, you know, like $15 per acre, an additional increased cost for the seed for like a cover crop. And then maybe they would pay another few bucks in um, fertilizers and chemicals just to get the cover crop um, up and going, and um, and then also um, get rid of the cover crop right before they grow their cash crop. But this cost savings, they didn't have to pay as much for fertilizer, especially especially if you grow, um, you know, a nitrogen-producing cover crop, something that's going to leave more nitrogen in the soil than what it came in. Mm-hmm. But, Um, And so, and they also reduce costs on labor and on fuel and oil. And so, you know, the costs end up balancing themselves out and then they get out of it the yield boost. And so it's just kind of a different way of looking at, um, you know, the overall costs that go into this system. It's really just like a whole systems approach. You know, you may have to pay a little bit more on the front end and that's what scares a lot of farmers. But really, there's all these other savings that you benefit from that um, maybe people don't take into account. So one of the things that
0: you um, talk about is that a motivating factor for these farmers is the threat of um, government regulation, Uh, especially Mm -hmm. especially since to date, a lot of them have been um, they've been voluntary programs. So honestly, like given what's at stake here and and how dire the situation is like what is what is so bad with government regulation <laughs> i'm honestly i'm a bigger fan of regulation i think than most people but like why not in this situation doesn't it seem like it's high time
3: i think that's where we're headed Um, and that's what I think scares farmers so far, you know, farmers are not so into regulation yeah,
0: (laughs) well not a lot of people are
3: (laughs) right, they are not into being told um, what and how they have to do something and so, and I think that's the thing that is so frustrating is that you know, we've had a lot a long, long time of voluntary government programs and stuff in place for people to transition to conservation practices and and people just aren't doing it. And so now, you know, um, in the Chesapeake Bay, they just said enough, it's it's not getting better. And so they put in place the very first, um, you know, regional wide, what's called a total maximum daily load. So it said, this is all of the pollution that we're gonna allow in the Chesapeake Bay. And we don't care how you state, there's six states involved. We don't care how you deal with your nutrient pollution but this is all that's allowed and you have to figure out a way to deal with it. And so people around the country, farmers around the country saw that and just, I think it kind of sent a wake up call around the country that said, okay, if we don't do this on our own, somebody's going to tell us we have to do it. And we might not have much of a say in how we have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think, you know, that's a real, I think it's a very scary time because, I mean, as, you know, you uh, all of you you probably know and your listeners know, you know, commodity prices have come down quite a bit in the last five years. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, everyone's looking for ways to cut costs. And so the last thing you want to have is someone telling you, okay, you're going to have to spend more money to reduce the amount of nutrients that are coming off your land. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that it's just a very scary time, and especially when we have a farm bill that... We don't know what's going to happen to conservation practices, but it looks like the the likelihood is that conservation is going to be cut mm-hmm. at some level, um, and hopefully not as you know badly as it it, it potentially could be um, under the House bill. The House bill is much more cuts to conservation than the current Senate bill does, and clearly yeah. they have a lot of work to do to figure all of that out, but. I think the writing is on the wall that there's not going to be as much money for conservation as there has been in the past. Right. Um,
0: what are the what are the some of the examples of some legislative efforts that are currently underway? Um, as far as. Oh, for to, to um, you know reduce it's so funny by the way you said you know to uh, like to reduce the amount of nutrients coming off of, of of farmers lands and it's not really I mean I guess it's nutrients but it, essentially it's pollution right I mean it, that's what it ends up it's both yeah
3: I mean that's the funny thing I mean it's nutrients if it's doing good things and it's pollution if it's doing bad things right
0: right well uh, it, but it ultimately ends up in waterways and um, you know, potentially contaminating drinking water for for example, as, yeah. as you say. So in terms of so what are some major legislative like efforts like currently happening um, at either the state level or if there are any at the federal level um, in place now that we can point to as maybe for farmers to be worried about or for conservationists to be excited about, depending on how you Hold look up. at
3: it. Right. I think, it's you know, a couple of states are trying some new approaches. Um, You know, some people are still clinging to the carrot kind of scenario. And so I believe that it is Iowa who last year tried a novel approach, which I think is really a lot of people are talking about and are pretty excited about. And they are um, encouraging farmers. Well, so farmers who plant cover crops, they receive a $5 per acre discount on their crop insurance for the next three years. Okay. And, you know, I think that is something that really has a lot of potential, because it's, it's kind of a win-win scenario. It's one where, um, you know, that is a pretty significant um, break on insurance. And it's also something that, you know, is very low risk. To try. Um, and so it, I think that that kind of is a really nice way to encourage people, pretty significantly encourage them to try this. I'm going to be really interested to watch the numbers over the next couple of years to see how many people take advantage of that program. Because if something like that doesn't motivate more farmers to really do something, then I don't know what will, honestly, on the voluntary front. Um, yeah. And I think... You know, other other states are looking at, um, you know, how the Chesapeake Bay um, TMDL works out. It, it, I mean, so far, they haven't made a lot of progress um, with that. And I think that pro, the TMDL has been in place for several years now. Um, and it's just not really having a huge impact. It's really, really hard to regulate farmers. They're just such a dispersed, diffuse group yeah. There's not a lot of regulatory manpower out there to make sure that people are doing what they need to be doing. And, you know, it can build up a lot of resentment and a lot of backlash. And so I think it's just a really, um, you know, it's really time to get creative and come up with some, you know, really either um, impressive carrots that people would just be absolutely foolish not to try and not to, you know, really commit to or coming up with some kind of regulatory push that, um, you know, has the ability to get people on board without risking a backlash.
0: Yeah. I mean, what do broadly speaking, what kind of technical assistance mechanisms are in place to encourage and support farmers who are kind of going out on a limb and trying some of these innovative practices?
3: Um, well, that's part of the problem, honestly. Uh, in um, my article, I kind of talk about how, you know, a lot of um, the kind of conservation um, officials that kind of are through state extension agencies, you know, they they can't do it all. And they're the first kind of line of people that are called in to try and do something along these lines. And then if they're not available, people turn to the... Um, fertilizer distributors (laughs) for information and a lot of times they don't have the correct information and that's been a real source of frustration out in the field is that you know the guys that are selling you seed and fertilizers they're not the best ones to probably be (laughs) offering up advice.
0: yeah I'm not gonna I'm not gonna imagine like you know pharmaceutical companies are going to be dissuading their um, Mm -hmm. providers from using less medication like that's ridiculous right exactly <laughs> You're like yes well what about so, oh yeah sorry go on
3: <laughs> oh no no it's just that's you know that's the problem is those are the guys that are in the field and if you want advice and that's the only one to turn to you know what kind of advice are you going to get and so I think this has been a constant kind of issue but there are you know there are teams of people um like the practical farmers of Iowa who are really trying to um work not only with farmers and with doing you know some really innovative um, kind of outreach and trying to arm farmers with information but they're also working you know so it's kind of they're coming at it from two approaches top up top down and bottom up so they're trying to give the farmers the information in hand and a lot of um, different groups are putting videos online on youtube about how to do this and what works and what doesn't in certain areas and give advice and just really try to go directly to the farmer and then they're also working with, um, you know, this coalition of some of the top companies and conservation groups to really kind of um, create cost share programs. And so having, um, you know, food manufacturers only, you know, or, or try and ideally find farmers who are using cover crops to contract with to grow their products that they want. They want to the the companies want to support sustainable conservation practices in the field. And so, you know, they're kind of going out of their way to um, contract with, say, soy growers that are going to commit to adopting cover crops and kind of give them the premium contract in the area. And so, it's, you know, hopefully the, more of these kinds of efforts are going to come online and to be able to motivate from a lot of different angles.
0: Right. Um, what So I mentioned the recent UN Climate Change Report. What is the connection between some of the findings coming out of that um, report and its relationship to, um, you know, the, the topics that you're covering in terms of the, mm-hmm. the problem with runoff in our waterways? And, and you know, the second part of the question is, um, do you think that this report... Has or will motivate policymakers to make to actually kind of put some of these legislative um, practices in place.
3: Well, so I mean, I think every climate change report that comes out just gets scarier and scarier. And I've been covering this for twenty years, um, and this is we're no. This is no joke anymore. This is not. This is not in the future. This is not something that we have time and the luxury of time to figure out. This is we have 10 years to avoid the absolute worst case scenario. And that should be extraordinarily motivating for anyone um, who is paying attention. Um, So I think the thing that comes out of that that directly impacts farmers is extreme weather events. And so if we're going to have more hurricanes, if we're going to have more extreme weather events, more extreme rain events, um, in the Midwest, at awkward times when you should be harvesting, say, or mm-hmm. when you should be planting, um, and then you're going to have droughts when you don't want them. You know, these are things that are going to make a hard job even harder. and in some cases, just downright um, not feasible anymore. And so I think that, you know, the conservation practices, like I said earlier, just make a system more resilient. They're going to, Keep the soil on the land during those extreme rain events. They're going to hold moisture longer during the drought events. They're just going to buffer your operation against whatever kind of, you know, weather mayhem we see as a result of climate change.
0: So how do we get to these farmers, all of these farmers? You, you talk about, I mean, so everybody! How do we, how do we change okay. this? Listen up! Yes, listen up! So seriously, like, how do you, you talk about how you know, disparate a group, and, you know, it's really hard to talk to kind of, like, all farmers across the country, and they are all dealing and have a, with separate issues that, you know, are maybe their, like, main priorities, but how, what is the most effective way to kind of get this message out to farmers like is it through farmers themselves the other farmers who are adopting these conservation practices or the media or like what
3: Um, Well, I think two things definitely need to happen. One is we need to not cut money for conservation efforts at this critical time. That is kind of the worst idea on the table right now. Mm -hmm. And at the most fundamental level, it you know, really, honestly, everyone that I talk to for these pieces, it is farmers being leaders for farmers. And, you know, that was what was really heartening was seeing a lot and a lot of these really young guys who are just motivated and really eager to do farming in a completely different way that are really being the flag bearers for, you know, doing this differently and um, creating that kind of resiliency that they know they're going to need. Um, and so once you start having some of these leaders that step forward and, you know, invite people onto their property and show them what they're doing and how well it's working or open up their books for EDF to do a report in the hopes that, You know, we get more follow on studies along these lines so we can really prove to uh, insurers and to farming lenders that these practices have value that hasn't been captured in the financial system. That's when we're going to start to see change.
0: Um, Okay, so I always ask this question of my guests um, when, you know, kind of at the at the end of every episode. And and that is, what can listeners do to encourage conservation practices and farmers to adopt them? So this doesn't seem as simple as voting with your fork or (laughs) calling your local representative. So how can those, you know, interested in this topic and in making a change get involved?
3: You know, that is a hard one, um, because it isn't straightforward. And it isn't easy. I think, um, you know, one of the main things is when you see companies like Gargill or Pepsi who are really kind of going out of their way to launch programs to incentivize um, their farmers to grow, you know, crops in it using cover crops or no-till, you know, support those products or let your legislator know that that's something you want to see, you know, them work towards more of, of, you know, however we can incentivize farmers to be able to do this. How can we help them help their land values. I mean, it just is really like when you think of it in that way of win, 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 you know, there has to be some creativity out there to um, really kind of get more momentum on, on these lines. But it is one of those very intractable issues that is so far removed from the average person, it can be really frustrating to figure out what you can do, and I, I, you know, I don't have an easy answer, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah,
0: well, none of these, none of the topics that I like to talk about on this show have easy answers, unfortunately. Um, Although you can do a lot by your your food choices, that's for sure. Um, And the the companies, you're right, the companies you choose to support. So, um, one of the things they can do, the listeners can do, is read more, um, you know, educate themselves more about Mm -hmm. these topics, and to that end, I want to ask, where can our listeners kind of find more of your work and, um, follow the, you know, th- follow the work that you're doing on these topics specifically.
3: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm a freelance science journalist. I write, um, for a lot of different publications. Um, and, but probably the easiest way is to just either look on my website. I try to keep it updated with, um, with my most recent things or on my Twitter feed. And it's just virginieguen.com is my website and um on Twitter.
0: Perfect. All right. Last question. What's next for you? Anything, uh, anything you want to give us a little heads up on that you're interested in covering or something that we should, you know, keep our eyes peeled for?
3: Um, well, I just, uh, did a piece, uh, for a website called biographic.com that is all about looking at efforts in the Amazon to, um, See if wild foods can help save uh, the Amazon from deforestation. So, trying to find the value and the native wild foods that are in the forest, so that the people there can hold on to their culture, their biodiversity, and have um, you know really good livelihoods. Um, and instead of clearing the land for growing oil palm. <laughs> so. Um, if you want to have a little exotic flavor go find that article it it was really I got to go to Peru in May and it was a really interesting set of um, just a a different set of farming challenges than I had looked at before but it was really interesting and um, it was a fun one
0: to do yeah well I'll have to have you back to talk all about it (laughs) All right. well we're going to have to leave it there but Virginia thank you so much for coming on the show today
3: Great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Okay, we're going to take a quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, I'll be joined by Ariel Lauren Wilson to talk about the upcoming conference, Food Loves Tech. Stay tuned.
1: This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods. Heritage Foods was founded to sell ancient breeds of livestock and poultry that were becoming extinct, largely because industrial agriculture willfully pushed healthy heritage breeds aside for more profitable, faster-growing animals. Rare heritage breeds are saved when popular demand increases and farmers have the incentive to raise them. This Thanksgiving, we encourage you to buy a turkey from Frank Reese's Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. Frank's turkeys are 100% purebred heritage, 100% pasture raised, and 100% antibiotic free. Turkeys are available in two pound increments. You choose your size. Don't wait. Pre order your heritage Thanksgiving turkey today at heritagefoods.com.
2: Yeah. I say yeah
0: And we're back. We're uh, on Eating Matters. We're, we're going to continue our conversation about the role of tech in the food and ag industry that we started to talk about in our my previous segment. Um, and we're going to talk about one way that this concept is being promoted. So joining me in the studio now... To get into this topic is Ariel Lauren Wilson. Hi. A.K.A. Lauren. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She's the editor-in-chief of Edible Brooklyn and is the program director of the upcoming Food Loves Tech conference hosted by Edible. on November 2nd and 3rd. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to have you here.
4: Yeah. And in person. And in person. <laughs> A lot of intersecting worlds, but never in person. Here I we know. are.
0: I love it. So so great to be in person. Yeah. Um let's talk about this conference. What's it what's it all about? Tell me everything.
4: Yeah, so this is our third year with Food Loves Tech. Um, The way it started um, was really kind of to have, I think, the founders, who included Brian Hallweil, who is my colleague at Edible, and Meg Savage, who is another colleague I have there. um, They kind of conceived it a few years ago as, I don't know if you've ever been to, like, Terra Madre. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've worked with Slow Food in the past. Okay, so. I've never
0: been to Terra Madre, but I worked with them, like, in advance of.
4: Right. So you know like the idea of like the Sony Del Gusto where you walk around and you're sampling stuff from all over the world that fits the criteria of slow food. I think they envisioned um, Food Loves Tech to be kind of this expo area where you could do something similar, but it was curated around the types of innovations we want to see in the future. So um, how that's evolved in practice Mm -hmm. over the past three years is that um, I like to call Food Loves Tech uh, a place where we're trying to celebrate the innovations that are making our food system more sustainable, more equitable, more delicious, and more nutritious. Um, And we look at that all along the value chain. We start in the field in the sea, Mm-hmm. And then we go into the home, into the city, um, as we call it, um, for, for the sake of the event, and in different regions. And then we go to the end, which is looking at the future, how emerging technologies like AI and VR, how they're being used and applied and what that means for us as eaters. Yeah. Um, so that's one part of Food Loves Tech is right. the main ethos. My involvement primarily is bringing in people to talk on these topics for those two days.
2: hmm
0: yeah. And I I, mean, I want to know about some of the panels that you're particularly excited yeah. about. Um but first, I mean, I guess when I first um when this first started, I I thought like Edible. I didn't necessarily expect Edible to be doing a conference on food and tech. Yeah. Um, so can you talk a little bit about like the, so it was inspired by Terra Madre, but was there, you know, internal like questioning of, is this our space? Right. Or, you know, like, yeah, do we want, is this kind of, the future of edible? Like how does those two things relate?
4: I think that's a great question because I think a lot of people are surprised to find that, you know, a local food magazine that is 15 years old that has, you know, sister publications across the country um, started as a high-end farmer's market newsletter. Why are we doing a (laughs) tech conference? Yeah. Um, And the way I understand it is that As, you know, different food businesses, especially over the past decade, have started, and there has been energy around wanting to change the food system for better, Mm -hmm. um, that what is happening also in tech during this time um, is a way to kind of scale those ideas in theory in a way that hopefully we can point to, like, the emerging tools that are coming out of tech as a way of being like, this is how we're going to achieve the food system we want. Um, So I think that's kind of like a natural pivot, even for our editorial, because so much of what's going on in Brooklyn and New York city at large in terms of food businesses are people trying to harness things that have come more out of like, You know, we could take different examples of the tech world, but, you know, trying to find ways. You work with our harvest. Mm -hmm. So you use tools that, um, when I say tech, I don't necessarily mean high tech, but are definitely things, are innovations that make, I don't know, a POS system more simplified that for sourcing and tracking and um, allowing people to order online for delivery. All these things have kind of come out of, you know, as different systems have evolved with computers. So that's kind of where it is. Yeah. Where you're, where you're going. Okay. Yeah. Now it makes perfect sense. Does that make sense? that <laughs> I, I like tie yeah. it together? Okay. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Good. No, I think it's great. And it's like the next wave and iteration with kind of where we're going in the, f- in the food movement. Like you said, like what changes are going to be most effective, you yeah. know, for, for, for achieving those, those changes that we so desperately need in our, in our food system. So, and I, can oh, I add
4: another point to that absolutely. too, that I think is so important. Um, in our day and age, obviously, I think about politics a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you know a lot of people look for food systems change these days in the private sector, um, seeing that as a place where we can move the needle a bit yep. more than we can right now, and ex- can especially in the U.S. expect. Mm-hmm. Um, our government to
0: do. Oh, you don't think our government's very supportive of making I mean, changes to the could- food system? <laughs> <laughs> or like regulation of, you know, oh, yeah. um. the food system or chemical companies or any of that? Oh, we can start a debate. <laughs> <Don't worry.
4: laughs> um, but I I also think it's important to add there that we shouldn't forget what is the responsibility of our government. In mm-hmm. as much as I feel like Food Loves Tech really shines a light on the possibilities of the private sector, you know, we are also bringing in the, the Brooklyn Borough President, Eric L. Adams, and Council Espinall, who represents actually this area of Brooklyn, mm-hmm. to talk about, you know, what is public policy here? Sam Cass will be there, who was at the White House with the Obamas, yep. worked on food policy. Former was guest chef. of Eating Matters. I'm sure he's been on. He, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's great. He's a lovely guy. Um, but... I think it is important, too, that even though we're in this period where I don't think we can expect much of anything from our government, Mm -hmm. um, we don't stop holding them accountable.
0: Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And you, I don't know if you had a chance to listen in on my my first segment, but I straight up said, like, what's so bad with regulation when we're talking about the horrible consequences that excess runoff from, you know, these farms are are causing and wreaking havoc on, um, you know, just the environment. Um, So yes, I totally agree. And I think that one thing that's important that you said is, you know, you're bringing together, um, I mean, with the exception of Sam, but elected official, locally elected officials. Right. And so in this day and age where we can affect like assume that nothing's good is going to happen from the federal, the federal level. It's more important to kind of rely on and push and hold accountable your local elected officials, officials as well. And yeah, I mean, this is like, I come from the New York city, health department and city hall world where we made major changes to the food system. Just like shameless plug for the Bloomberg administration, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. yeah.
4: So no, that's I totally when that office agree. was founded in New York city. And I think is an incredible Testament to like, in my mind, democracy happens locally mm-hmm. and in New York city, we're fortunate enough to have a lot of progressive examples of, of public policy that I think can be an, an example, hopefully to people elsewhere. Yeah. Um, and then if you can pull something off like this in New York, like you can do it anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. So, what are what are some of the topics that you're going to be talking about? You know, you're going to bring like say these elected officials, these policymakers. Like, what um, what panel will be they be on, and what you know kind of conversations are you expecting sure. to have?
4: Um Yeah. So the way so I described earlier the expo like tasting portion of Food Love Tag, where people the idea is to be really immersed. But I'm going to be mostly working on. I have worked on. It has to be done now. It's happening next week. (laughs) It has to be done. Um, (laughs) But it's two days of panel conversations that um, are 12 topics that I think are some of the most pressing facing the food supply. Mm -hmm. Um, So... To just to speak to what Councilman Espinal's on, the panel kicking us off is actually moderated by another Heritage host, Lisa Held, nice. who does a farm report. Yeah, um, She's moderating a panel on the future of urban agriculture in New York City, which is kind of at a crossroads as some of these VC-funded startups for indoor agriculture are taking off, but also New York City has this incredible rich history of community gardens and soil-based farms um, that don't have that sort of funding. Right. And... Um, in any case, that sort of panel will tackle that question. Espinal has proposed different forms of legislation that both encourage urban agriculture as an entrepreneurial um, pursuit, whether that is, you know, from this more sophisticated infrastructure, or is more of just like keeping our spaces green and giving people access to local food in their own area and mm-hmm. making sure we protect those spaces. That's one example. Brooklyn Borough President Eric L. Adams is on another panel talking about the innovations that can hopefully improve our health Mm -hmm. Um, and he is a big advocate of plant Based diets in mm-hmm. in Brooklyn in particular. Well, that's where where he where he is. But um, he's really into encouraging doctors to prescribe vegetables as medicine. Um, you know, for people with chronic illness that's related to diet. Yeah. Uh, so those are a couple examples. We have. Um, I'll be moderating a panel with Sam that has to do with genetics and the food supply. Um, looking at you know what there are several other people on there too. Urvashi Rangan, Jason Grauer from Stone Barns also a former guest oh excellent I mean we, if people miss Food Loves Tech why don't they just listen they to should your just listen. show yeah they should, they do should both. just do the backlog they should just do both yeah yeah they should do both if you want more if you come to Food Loves Tech and you want to hear more <laughs> <laughs> just go to Jenna's show from like two years ago. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> um, so, you know, Ravashi, then you're a, lo-
0: a little behind the tech curve. I'm a little behind the tech curve in previous episodes, but, um, with it's right here upon <laughs> us, it's right? Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So she's phenomenal. I oh. mean, you've got, that's what a brilliant, I, I mean, your
4: lineup is like
0: so many heavy hitters, like yeah. really great speakers. Yeah, so-
4: no, I'm, I'm really honored that people have made time for it. And, um, I was, you know, last year, I think we really hit a stride with part of it, but people are showing up. I think these are conversations people want to have as different things are marketed at us, as we all want to try to do better, as we want to try to find convenient ways to fit it into our lives. Um, we have a lot of questions, and we should keep questioning, yeah. um, especially with the absence of a government, so a federal government at least. So. Yeah. So yeah.
0: what? So what? To what extent? So you talk about like urban agriculture, and I maybe have my own, you know, thoughts on that. Like, yeah. I think of a city like Detroit, brilliant for urban agriculture. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I'm I'm very familiar with the trim from there, but like, just acres and acres and acres, where so that could be more possible and more kind of. Um, higher volume but like i guess so my question is and considering that yeah, edible is throughout the country what to what extent is this conference very focused on new york and, and brooklyn versus um the rest of the u.s and and you know in some of these discussions happening yeah are they like brooklyn based or are they kind of for everybody
4: that's a really good point um So I think just getting, I mean, there's definitely a vision where we want to have Food Loves Tech everywhere. And depending on where people are, you know, it's going to be appropriate for their local community. But I think at the same time, you know, there is no roadmap right now to take it to other cities. That's not to say we're not thinking about it. Uh Um, However, I feel like most of the panels at Food Loves Tech could be applicable to people even if they're not living in New York City. You know, some yeah. of the topics that come up, like how what is the role of tech in restaurants? Um, you know, what is the role of tech in protecting our seafood and making like eating seafood more sustainable as an act? Like those are just things that us right. as eaters should be concerned about, regardless of where we are. Um, I think urban agriculture is a very locally. It's a very local question. There are some of these topics that I think are very local questions. Right, and others that will apply more broadly. Yeah,
0: And, you know, I mean, to the... uh, Edible Brooklyn is about Brooklyn. Yeah. (laughs) So you guys, you know, you're very... seems like Edible is very... It is very tailored to the particular publication. And so then it makes sense that it's going to be more Brooklyn focused, right? Or New York City focused,
4: this particular conference. Yeah.
0: I can't wait for one that's happened in Detroit. That would be amazing. I would totally travel for
4: that. Oh my gosh. I would love to do one in Detroit. I mean, there's, I think there's, Detroit's a great example for me of innovation that's happening in the absence also of tech funded VC. Yeah, like yeah. it's people serving themselves with innovations that they're coming up with on their own. And I think that that, my ideal f- vision for Food Loves Tech is where we can also bring those stories in the room, too. Yeah. Food Loves Tech is a bit of a n- misnomer in that it's a little more technophilic than I like. But I yeah. think it's like if I can just get people in there who are shining examples of how people can c- take control of their food. Right. Then great. Yeah. Like the food, the future of the food system. Yeah. What's, um,
0: what's new about this? this con- well, you know, what's new for this year? There's going to be a tractor
4: wow in brooklyn there's gonna be a tractor. i'm retiring after food loves tech because it is my single greatest professional feat
0: you're like mic drop yeah i'm done <laughs> at the ripe old age of
4: 30 no i'm 29 there you go. i'm not 30 yet i'm not 30 yet
0: <laughs> <laughs> i'm always six months ahead in my mind of how old i am to prepare myself for the next age yeah like i've been 36 for over a year now <laughs> <laughs>
4: it, my my birthday isn't coming. But, um, yeah, a tractor's coming. I, mean, I just forgot how old I was. Yeah, I don't even know anymore. Does it matter? <laughs> no. But there's a tractor coming to Brooklyn, and that's what matters. To Industry City? Where is it? Yeah, so it's an industry city in Sunset Park. Um, not that far, if you take the N or the D. Okay. There's some other trains that go down there. Um, the tractor's coming from Stone Barns, from our friends ah. up there. They have um, an open-source tractor okay. called the Ogan. Um, which you can actually... The the idea of the Ogan, which I think is very powerful, is that this gentleman, this man named Horace, he was working in Cuba with farmers and he realized that they could really benefit from some small farm tools that um, they just didn't have access to there, but Mm -hmm. he knew of in the U.S. And he was like, he's an engineer by training. He kind of like had the mind for it. He decided he was going to make plans for a tractor that you could build just with stuff at the hardware store. Mm-hmm. And so he designed this tractor that, like, you know, ostensibly anybody can go online, get this stuff, build it themselves. You don't go to a store to get it other than, like, I don't know, your uh, body shop or something like right. that. But uh, that's one thing that'll be there. Our that's little open source tractor. That's amazing. new. Yeah. Very
0: cool. What else are you like? So, I mean, obviously you're so excited for the whole thing. It all sounds amazing. Yeah. But if there's like one thing that you want to tell people, do not miss this. Oh, I already already, spoiled it with the
4: tractor. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) Uh, The second thing, the second thing.
4: The the second thing is, I feel like this year we're actually going to have more food and drink for people to try. Mm -hmm. I think that people should come in... um, uh, Hungry? They should definitely come hungry. They should know that once you buy your ticket, Mm -hmm. which if you use the code FLT30 at checkout, it's 30% off the ticket price. FLT30. FLT30. Nice. No space, all caps. Alright. That it's all you can eat and drink. And Gramercy Tavern is doing a pop-up throughout the event. Wow. Little Tongues there. INSA, which I love INSA beyond belief. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of incredible chef partners. And, um, yeah, come hungry and it'll be surprisingly come filling. Come really full. Yeah. yeah. Maybe a little tipsy. Are you serving alcohol? I mean... I'm unclear. not gonna. I'm not gonna go on the record. Okay. I don't know. I yeah. mean, I, at some point we Question are, mark. but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like maybe the day. you're gonna maybe. find out. Show be up. lots of oat milk. There are. <laughs> I just bought some today. Yeah, <laughs> I Oatly, love oat milk. Oatly is one of our big sponsors for the event. You It'll know, be lots of oat. There will milk. be tons of oat milk.
0: <laughs> Done. I don't know any bigger selling point yeah, to the not. Brooklyn audience. Yeah, I feel like my, with my first purchase of oat milk, it solidified my Brooklynite status. Even after being in the borough for about ten years, like I wasn't a Brooklynite until I bought oat milk, and then it was like,
4: "Yep." Yeah I have arrived Well you can like Fully bask in that If you come <laughs> to food, food Loves Tech
0: <laughs> Everyone can Go to
4: Brooklynite Yep We're giving out Free lattes With And this is not A, a joke It's not an exaggeration <laughs> <that's>
0: happening <laughs> Okay That is amazing So where can people Go to get tickets com.
4: Like I said Use FLT30 At checkout To get 30% off Can they get tickets At the door If they
0: are like me And procrastinate
4: I mean, we're hoping to sell the thing out, yeah. um, but... And are, uh, you, are you close, so people need to I would go encourage in. I would encourage people to go online first. Yeah. And um, day of, if you're really compelled to come, I think that, you know, we'll find a way to get you in. Okay. But, um, yeah. And then for people who
0: work on Fridays, right, who can't make it, like, mm-hmm. tons of... It's tons of stuff on Saturday, too, right?
4: Yeah. So it's two days, Friday and Saturday. We're starting at 10.30 in the morning, going to, I think, 4 is our closing time. And um, all the panels are going to be captured on video and also audio to be posted later later and the expo side should be the same both days although i have to say the tractor will not be there on saturday it is just a friday event oh my god so ask your boss off right if like you need you need the time off yeah you're like sir
0: (laughs) there's a tractor that i need to see yeah and i don't know what boss would be like no and get another job (laughs) yeah (laughs) Priorities. (laughs) Priorities. Mm. Amazing. Um, All right. Well, we are going to have to leave it there. But before we do, you have a very exciting edible announcement, right? Yeah.
4: So I appreciate it Mm. to be able to cross-pollinate here here on your show, cross-promote. We're launching a podcast, too, that weekend called In the Field. Amazing, which is really exciting. The first season of In the Field really takes this food and technology um, idea head on, and it's five episodes. And we're examining it from we we do an episode that's front and back at house at Stone Barns and Blue Hill, looking at how they use tech, both low and high to pull off what they do up there, to yeah. have one of the most sustainable food operations in the world. Um, and then we have another episode that goes into the indoor farming in New York City, trying to understand what that means and who it, who who it's for. Um, there's an oat milk episode. Oh my god. Oatly's our sponsor for the season, but come on, yeah. like we all need to know more about it. Yeah, I um,
0: do. Yeah. Definitely if you uh, have what I drink. Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right. So that's awesome. So five seasons or five episodes to start, and it launches on Edibles platform or where you know where can you find it?
4: Yeah. So the trailer will launch November second, which is next Friday, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then every two weeks will be coming out after that. It'll be on anywhere where you get your podcasts: iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. I'm All learning of the above. above yeah I feel like I stop I'm like iTunes and Stitcher
0: and wherever else
4: yeah (laughs) there's just a whole list (laughs) they come and go there's a whole whole
0: thing all right well we're gonna have to leave it there but thank you so much for coming on the show to chat about this my pleasure get your tickets Mm. okay um, we are uh, wrapping up for today I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support and also thanks to our fantastic engineer Jeet Paul show music is by Tim Archer all episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or wherever podcasts are found. I'm Jenna Leute and thank you for listening.
2: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org.